The more the world changes, the more we find comfort in things that never change. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. Great to have you together with me for this new episode. And if you are going to be hearing any background noises like uh, seagulls or water splashing or anything like that, let me just explain that uh, I am uh, taping and recording this episode of the podcast um, on a small boat off the coast of British Columbia. And uh, it is uh, my family boating trip. And so I'm trying to keep things as quiet as I can in the background. But just to just to warn you that uh, if it is not quite as pristine as we usually like, uh, there is a very good reason for that. But I hope that nonetheless uh, the, the content will make up for it. And I can assure you I have been thinking diligently uh, about some of these topics during the past week figuring out the best way in which I can present them to you and share them together with you. So um, let's start off with uh, our arrival yesterday in a small island uh, in British Columbia called Salt Spring Island. Now, this is a, it's a little paradise. It's a beautiful little island. Um, tiny population, small villages, and uh, very picturesque harbors and bays and inlets. And uh, we decided that instead of anchoring out in one of the, the bays, we're going to dock in the harbor of the town, which we did. And I then went into the harbor master's office to pay our dockage, which uh, is <laughs> it's, it's amazingly... I don't want them to hear me saying this, but... Um, for you know, it's 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 amazingly economical, but um, they then said, uh, "Oh, they said, would you like to plug in 30 amp power for your boat?" And I said, "That would be fantastic." And then they said, "Okay, great, everything's organized." Oh, by the way, we got a slight problem. Uh, this summer we are we have no water on the dock, so if you were hoping to fill the water tank on your boat, that's not going to be possible. We have no water down on the dock. I said, "What?" And uh, the truth is we had not run down our – I mean, we're pretty careful with water on the boat, you know, no long, luxurious showers or anything like that. And so uh, I, we were not desperate, but nonetheless I was puzzled and surprised because, as you can imagine, uh, other than the, the summertime, this area gets, shall we say, more than its fair share of rainfall. Uh, they get a whole lot of rain during the uh, – uh, well, I'd say eight months of the year, a whole lot of rain. And so uh, – in fact, it might even might even rain today, and it is the summer. But uh, the the uh, the answer was quite. High. They said, "Oh, we have a serious drought. Uh, the the lakes are are not staying full. They're running towards empty, and so the the city or the town or the the whatever the governing authority is here, they've shut off water to the marina." Uh, I said to the harbor, "Okay, fine," but then. I think to myself, this is bizarre. This reminds me of California. Now, look, it's not hard to obtain the information that uh, in California, enough snow and water and rain runs down the western slopes of the Sierra Mountains, 
and down to the Pacific Ocean every year, enough r snow melt and enough rain to provide for the water needs for an entire year, not just for California, but also for Arizona and Nevada as well. Really, there's a lot. So what is the problem? The problem is not the good Lord, <laughs> okay? The problem is not that God is trying to punish California with a drought any more than he's trying to punish Salt Spring Island with a drought. No, not at all. There's plenty rain. The problem, my friends, is that uh, nobody but nobody uh, wants to build the necessary dams, the necessary reservoirs, the necessary culverts, canals, and waterways. They don't want to do that. Why? Because of environmental reasons. Uh, today, it is almost impossible to get a permit to build a dam. As a matter of fact, the uh, California state government is going in the reverse direction. They're d dismantling dams. As a matter of fact, this is actually happening. They are really taking apart dams. And I'll explain, oh, these dams aren't needed anymore. Right. Have you checked electricity prices in San Francisco lately? Have you noticed that uh, throughout California, particularly Southern California, uh, the use of water is now rigorously regulated? Why is all that? Well, there's a drought, there's a drought, there's a drought. Well, yes, every few years there is a drought. There might even be two years of drought. And then after a few more years, we get loads and loads of rainfall. Fine. Point is... You're supposed to build dams to conserve during the good years. Every child who's had anything of a basic education, which probably means homeschoolers these days, um, or, or non-governmental schools, uh, knows the, the fable of the ant and the grasshopper. Everybody knows that when the times are good, you put away for when the times are bad. Everybody knows the story of Joseph in Egypt. Everybody knows save up for a rainy day. Who doesn't know these ideas? Well, uh, governments don't, for a start. And those who have been seduced by the sordid stain of secularism that is essentially the defining doctrine of environmentalism. That's right. Now, very often uh, people have said to me, well, you know, what can it hurt to be environmental? I said, well, uh, the trouble with that term is it's ill-defined. And what is a mild uh, rule or ritual of the religion of environmentalism today, tomorrow adjusts to something far more aggressive and far more intrusive. And so the sad thing is that America is... And I, I don't want to be over dramatic, and I don't want to uh, diminish the point I'm making by overstating it. But you might remember that in the 60s, um, John F. Kennedy and the Peace Corps, and into the early 70s, they used to send very earnest minded and sincere young people to Africa to help dig wells and to create safe and sanitary water supplies because there was shortage of water in many African villages. Not many, most. Yeah, not even most, all. And, uh, and so good young Americans went to help f provide water for 
the Africans. Well, I think it's time for the Africans to return the favor. I think they should come to California and teach Californians what to do about getting water. And what they would teach them is very simple. They'd say, do what we did. Open your doors to the Chinese. Let them come in. Let them bring their construction know-how. Let them bring their personnel. Let them bring their designs and their engineers. And they will build dams for you just like they're building dams for us. The uh, greatest dam project in the world is the Seven Gorges Dam Project that uh, was built by the Chinese. It's still being built. It's not entirely, not all phases are finished. And yes, uh, did some towns and small, not towns, villages have to be displaced and moved? I would say so. Yes, that did happen. And uh, did some animals drown in the rising waters of the dam? Probably. But those that didn't will rapidly reproduce. And uh, was some land eroded and washed away? I, I don't know for, for sure. But all I do know is that it wouldn't be hard for environmentalists to claim, oh, substantial environmental damage called, caused by the Seven Gorges Dam. Bottom line is that uh, the Chinese in that region of the country uh, will have no shortage of water for the foreseeable future, and uh, their industry will have no shortage of electricity. They will certainly not be paying the rates for electricity that uh, are now paid by American consumers. Why? Oh, because your electricity bill has to subsidize the so-called wind electricity industry. Uh, as you know, wind and solar are not yet viable, but the government in its uh, secular and, um, and, and environmental splendor has decreed that we will be using renewable energy sources. Um, trouble is renewable energy sources such as wind and solar are uneconomical. doesn't matter. They'll be subsidized then. And the, if you know people, as I do, who uh, have installed solar cells on the roof of their houses, they don't pay for that. You do. There are subsidies paid for by the government. As you know, the government doesn't have any money. It can only take yours and redistribute it. And uh, that's precisely what it's done. So that's why right now you'll even hear companies saying, hurry, hurry, install solar cells on your roof. Government subsidies running out. Well, yes. Uh, although giving away other people's money is fun, it eventually has its limits. And uh, that's where we've reached right now. And so in places like China and in many parts of Africa now, uh, when you go to a hotel, Nobody says, to help us save water, please reuse your uh, towels. To help us save water, please, we will only change the bedding on your, uh, on your beds once a week. Nobody says that in Africa or in, uh, or in Asia. There's plenty water because they built dams. But in the United States, particularly in California, the new religion, the religion of secular fundamentalism, decrees no building of dams building is evil and the result is drought water shortage no it's not a drought it's not a water shortage you're just not conserving water the way you're meant to conserving water by the way doesn't mean as it has started to mean in some southern california cities that uh, they now recycle toilets 
Okay, do you understand what I'm saying? There are places now in the United States where they subject what we call in the boating uh, game black water, right? On a boat, we have three types of, uh, of water to deal with. We have fresh, clean water, and that is used for uh, cooking, bathing, uh, and yes, even flushing what we call the head. Uh, otherwise, in landlubber terms, the toilet. Uh, we flush it with fresh water because salt water uh, just ha it, it has a smell that sort of permeates, and you know, bathrooms on a boat are teensy weensy, especially if it's not a big boat, and uh, and so smells can be rapidly overpowering. So we don't use salt water to flush, although it's sort of its endless availability is attractive, but we do use our precious fresh water supply. We got another kind of water called grey water. Grey water is the water that uh, is uh, the water that comes from our showers and from the kitchen, uh, from the kitchen sink. So it's water that's not uh, clean and fresh, but neither is it uh, really bad. The water that is discharged from the toilet is called black water. And so we have a black water tank that, uh, that we pump out, and we have a gray water just flows overboard everywhere because it causes no harm at all. It's, it's just basically all uh, organic. And uh, fresh water is fresh water. So what they're doing in some parts of the country now is, and this is honest to goodness, uh, they are actually, um, <laughs> I'm sorry about this, they are taking uh, black water, they're taking what is discharged from the sewer s systems, subjecting it to uh, so-called purification, and then supplying it as fresh water again. Don't know about you, but uh, do you really trust the folks who bring you the post office Amtrak, the Veterans Administration, and the TSA, do you really trust them to provide you drinking water that yesterday came from somebody's toilet? Do you? Now, none of this happens in so-called third world countries. Remember we used to disdainfully refer to uh, places in Asia and uh, places in uh, Africa as third world countries? Well, none of this is happening there. You know why? because they build water projects. And so here we are on breathtakingly beautiful uh, Salt Spring Island. No water to be had. But uh, you check out the rainfall, plenty rain here. It's just that they have not built a dam in 40 years. In California, they haven't built a dam for even longer. That's true. And uh, while the population of California has multiplied pl multiplied dramatically, many of whom are illegal aliens, multiplied dramatically, the dam building has not only not kept pace, but it stopped dead when the environmental movement started. And so, uh, and it is quite commonly accepted that it is entirely impossible today to get the zoning necessary in order to get a, uh, a dam built. Cannot happen. Uh, let's take a quick pause before we carry on and I show you uh, some remarkable uh, biblical information. And uh, I, th I mean, whether or not you're biblically interested or literate or, or I again, as I always like to say, regardless of what your uh, interest is in the Bible, it is, after all, without question, the most influential book that has shaped Western civilization. 
And uh, when it has something to say on a topic as crucial as uh, water and environmentalism, I do think that uh, I, that that it, it, it's it's interesting enough for me to share on this uh, podcast. So hold on right there, and I, your rabbi, shall return. Ancient solutions to modern problems. This is Rabbi Daniel Lapin on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Chris Salcedo. So it was again. If Barack Obama was supposed to be there touting, touting the, the, the wonders of, of Obamacare. He couldn't even be bothered to show up to the event on time. Nine minutes, President Obama shows up, delivers a speech, no apologies, no explanations. Just, I'm a declare, royalty, you will wait for me. Arrogance beyond explanation. Chris Salcedo, Saturdays, noon to 3 p.m. Eastern, on the Blaze Radio Network. Rabbi Daniel Lappin returns with more of how the world really works on the Blaze Radio Network On Demand. So what is going on here as we return to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin show, exploring why it is that some of the most civilized and sophisticated parts of the world are short of water, whilst less advanced places, to put it mildly, seem to be doing just fine. I mean, after all, wouldn't you have thought that the supply of fresh water would be kind of one of the most basic responsibilities of government? Why on earth would we establish a government with powers over us that we accept were it not for the fact that it takes care of the things we couldn't take care of ourselves? national defense, uh, roads, and, uh, and so on, the, the things we understand. And, and again, this isn't, a, uh, th- this isn't the time or place uh, to go into the question of whether we really intended government to take care of endangered species. Uh, did we really intend uh, federal government to take care of education? Uh, do we really need the federal government paying money to people it considers worthy of anointing as artists through the National Endowment of the Arts? Is that a really good reason to take money away from hard-working Americans in order to underwrite maudlin self-expression by uh, people who have been anointed as the official artists of the country? I don't see why, but that's not for here and now. Here and now, we're discussing, or at least I'm uh, talking about, why it is that for the last 50 years, the government has abandoned the responsibility of providing water. And instead of which, what we get is exhortations from government to use less water. Nobody in China is being told to use less water. Nobody in Abu Dhabi. Can you believe it? Nobody. I was in Abu Dhabi a little while ago. The hotel, guess what? They change everything, not only every day, but if you want to have towels changed twice a day, they're happy to do that. And I I asked them, I said, don't you have any problems with laundry? And they looked at me as if I was from another planet, which in many ways I suppose I was. And uh, they simply go ahead and desalinate in sufficient volume to take care of all their needs because there is no rain. That's what they do. Now, in America, 
it used to be that way too. But times have changed. So let's go back a little bit, if you don't mind, and uh, remember when things were just a little bit different. Do you know that uh, the Second Continental Congress, which was sort of the de facto national government of, of what was going to become the United States of America, um, in uh, 17, well, from the end of 1776 until early 1777, for a few months, three or four months, uh, the, the government, such as it was then, met where? Well, actually in Baltimore. Yes, Baltimore, as you know, famous now or infamous for its uh, street celebrations. Back then, Baltimore was the largest seaport in our young country. And it was through Baltimore that the overwhelming majority of the imports and exports moved. It wasn't until 1830 or soon thereafter that New York supplanted Baltimore. Now, it's a very interesting thing, and I've, I've looked into this because I was puzzled. What causes the decline and rise of different cities? Why is it that Baltimore was replaced by New York? There was no comparison back then in terms of the importance, the, the trading, the, the, the wealth that was created all through the port of Baltimore. What changed? Well, uh, I'm sure that uh, many historians have different theories, but I'll tell you what mine is. Mine is that what changed the economic and commercial emphasis from Baltimore to New York was really nothing more than a, an enormous ditch, a ditch that was about 40 feet wide and, uh, oh, about four foot deep and about 360 miles long. This ditch stretched from Albany on the Hudson River all the way to Buffalo on Lake Erie. Now, at its time, this was the largest, most daunting, most expensive engineering project imaginable. Tens of thousands of men dug it with their picks and shovels. The earth was moved by horses pulling primitive equipment. Yes, this was called the Erie Canal, and it took eight grueling years, relentlessly driving through limestone mountains, dense forests, uh, rocks and tree stumps were blown up, uh, and by the way, <laughs> dynamite was not going to be invented for another 40 years, so they only had black powder. This ditch, this magnificent canal, rose 600 foot from the Hudson River to the Great Lakes. And it involved the building of 48 stone locks. And by the way, to this day, if you ever have an opportunity uh, while you're touring or visiting that part of the country, if you ever have a chance to take a look at the Erie Canal, today it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful uh, leisure resource. A lot, of, a lot of pleasure boats use the canal. And I, I must admit, I would, I would love to, to travel uh, that canal by boat. But uh, even if you don't do that, just taking a look at the locks, the incredible craftsmanship that was involved in building these 48 locks that allow the ships to, to rise and drop uh, without water being lost. Um, these, uh, this was, I, I guess what I'm trying to stress is what an incredible construction project this was for its day. Uh, 
honestly, if you, if you sort of think about it country for country, this probably, in terms of the, the size of the project vis-a-vis -vis the size of the country and its economic abilities and the population, I'm quite sure the building of the Erie Canal was a bigger project for America in its day than the building of the Seven Gorges Dam is for China today. It was, without question, the defining engineering project of the 19th century. Now, this was not the end, but it was the beginning of grand projects in America. Railroads quickly followed. The entire country was networked with railroads. Try and, imagine trying to run a, you know, try and get a right of way today. Uh, then came the 20th century. And what happened in the 20th century? Um, the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco was about 1939, I think. Um, the George Washington Bridge across the Hudson River linking Manhattan to New Jersey. The Verrazano Bridge linking uh, Brooklyn and Queens to Staten Island. Um, it, that same century saw us building the world's tallest buildings, the biggest dams, Grand Coulee Dam. Grand Coulee Dam. It's a remarkable project in eastern Washington. Um, the, the Hoover Dam that made Las Vegas possible and a whole lot more. And many, 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 many more enormous, wonderful projects that brought life and fertility and, uh, and verdant growth to many, many parts of the country. Uh, it was also, by the way, the, the interstate highway system. I mean, there are cities today that are clogged up with traffic because there is no longer the ability. The political will is simply not there to build a road or a highway to facilitate traffic. Instead, they're building light rail systems. Get people out of their cars, cry the city planners. Make car travel so arduous and difficult so that people have no alternative but to take refuge in their uh, buses, light rails, and uh, subways, and bicycles. That's right. You couldn't do it today. Now, I identify again the time at which the construction of grand projects in America began uh, as round about the early 60s which happens to have been, as I've discussed in, in earlier podcasts in this series, and if you haven't heard the earlier ones, I wish you would because I'm kind of counting as we move along, I'm kind of, I'm kind of counting on you having got a handle on some of these things as we've discussed them in the past. And so if I do happen to mention something or allude to an idea that sounds uh, odd to you or alien to you, please do go back and uh, fill in the podcast you may not have already heard. And so what uh, I'm pointing out is that the termination of building, the termination of building projects for the convenience of human beings uh, corresponded to America's drop into secularism. Is this a coincidence? I don't think so. It was round about the 1960s, early 1960s, that the defining Judeo-Christian values that had sculpted a culture, a civilization, and a nation uh, were replaced very much by what I feel like I do. If it feels good, do it. It is good. All the rituals and regulations and restraints 
of religion, that it helped to mold a great people, uh, was summarily abandoned, jettisoned, and what we were left with was a culture rooted in secularism. Now, at exactly the same time that this happened, we stopped building projects. No dams built since then. Honestly, you'll, you'll struggle to find any substantive project built subsequent to 1960, 62, 63, round about there. Is this a, a coincidence? I don't think so. And what I thought I would do is uh, give you some of the ancient Jewish wisdom that uh, I am basing the uh, podcast on. Now, sometimes I don't tell you where it's coming from. Sometimes I just give you the results. That's like uh, showing you the finished woodworking project, a beautiful rocking chair that I've just built. And uh, you look at it, and you have absolutely no idea how I was able to put it together and uh, create this. Other times, I let you into my woodworking shop, and uh, you can see my lathe on which I turn those delicate legs, and you can see uh, the uh, intricate jigsaw I use for cutting out the shapes. And uh, sometimes it's interesting to do it that way as well. So today, into the workshop with me, and we are then going to take a look at exactly what aspects of Scripture, what aspects of the Bible, uh, shaped a way of thinking and which, when we abandoned them, caused a groupthink, a zeitgeist, that shunned the idea of building anything at all. My website, folks, is uh, www.youneedarabbi.com, www.youneedarabbi.com. And uh, you also find there, in addition to um, other uh, recordings and videos, you also find uh, material and resources on these topics we're discussing should you want to delve more deeply into any of these things. So... Uh, do that, and uh, when we come back in just a moment, I will show you the scriptural verses that lay the foundation for clear thinking on the idea of building dams. Don't go away. You're listening to Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Find more at theblaze.com slash radio. Fox Sexton. This was just a photo op, don't you see, really, for the White House. This is a pressure valve for all the criticism, all the naysayers, all the people who are pointing out that Iran has been messing us up all over the place, particularly in the Middle East, has been intransigent, and is an entire governing body dedicated towards the destruction of Israel. Buck Sexton, weekdays, noon to 2 p.m. Eastern, on the Blaze Radio Network. Revealing how the world really works. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Thanks so much for being part of this podcast and uh, and listening to it, because I, I will tell you, without you, there, there wouldn't be a podcast. The encouragement I get for talking into a, a microphone and recording this is precisely the numbers that show me that more and more of you are listening each and every week. So I deeply appreciate that, and uh, I can assure you that I devote myself as, as uh, dedicatedly as I possibly can uh, to revealing to you how the world really works through the lens of ancient 
Jewish wisdom. And talking as we are of the question of whether we human beings, do we have the right to impose our will upon the earth? Are we entitled to take a river and dam it up for our convenience so as that we will have water during the years when it doesn't rain quite as much or it doesn't snow as much? Are we entitled to do that? Or are we assaulting the earth? Are we attacking the environment? Do we have the right to build canals, to lay pipelines? Do we have the right to use the oil, that marvelous reservoir of chemical energy embedded deep under the earth? Do we have the right to mine for minerals that then become useful in making lives longer and saving lives as we build medical equipment and we build medication, we create medication. Are we entitled to do all these things? Well, clearly, from a secular standpoint, the earth acquires godlike status. And sure enough, in the Hebrew scriptures, there are warnings from God to ancient Israel of do not worship trees. Who would have thought that we would live in times where there are people who worship trees? Whereas we correctly for centuries and centuries understood that trees were a renewable resource, just like uh, coffee beans or anything else. Nobody says, stop drinking coffee, you're using up the coffee, we just plant more. But why do people say, stop cutting down trees just to build houses for human beings? You're spoiling, you're attacking, you're... Why? Why just like, plant more trees, that's all? But, um, no. Uh, there's something in the scripture of secularism that, prohi that prohibits using a tree. Quite remarkable. And this predicted accurately in the Bible. Now, on the surface of it, it might appear that there is a common thread linking the, um, uh, the ideas of secular, fundam secular fundamentalists uh, to those of the Bible. Let me tell you what I mean. Uh, King, uh, in, the, uh, in the book of Psalms, King David wrote in Psalm number 24, The earth and all that fills it is the Lord's. Now, wouldn't that seem to suggest that we ought not to touch anything because everything on the earth belongs to God? And that doesn't mean that we can just dam a river. That doesn't mean we can build a reservoir and make uh, an area unpopular for desert rats or uh, for any other creature. Who, who says we can do that? Well, in Psalm 115, 115, uh, verse 16, King David writes, The heavens are the heavens of the Lord, but he has given the earth to human beings. Hmm. Well, which is it? Doesn't this seem on the surface of it as, uh, as if um, uh, King David is either being inconsistent um, or... Almost maybe he forgot by the time he got to Psalm 115, he forgot what he wrote in Psalm 24. No, that's not how Jew ancient Jewish wisdom sees it. As a matter of fact, 
uh, King David was illuminating a timeless truth, vitally necessary for understanding how the world really works. Uh, yeah, King David was explaining that to begin with, yes, the entire earth and all it contains belongs to God. However, if we, God's children, trust Him, bless Him, and thank Him, then He gives the earth to us. It starts off as His, but then through our relationship with Him, He gives it to us. Don't you find, if you've got children, don't you find a pleasure in giving things to your children? Even if you have um, treasured possessions, I mean, I, I remember uh, if uh, I remember when I uh, I, I had a, um, a, a a lovely camera once. Well, I couldn't wait for one of my children to get old enough so I could give it to her, and I took great delight in her using my camera and treating it as her own. I I like that, and so does everybody. We, we want our children to use and get pleasure from the things we own. And uh, God is no different. God takes pleasure in us using the things that he has. But in the same way that I would not feel that sanguine about my children using my possessions, if it wasn't for the fact that we have a relationship of love and close bonding and trust but if there was no relationship or a bad relationship heaven forbid between someone and their children I don't think they'd want their children to use their things and that is exactly the point that King David is making in Psalm 24 he's saying you know what to begin with let's face it it's all God's just the way your possessions are yours then comes Psalm 115 and by this time, King David is talking about the relationship between us and our Father in heaven. And guess what the result of that is? Everything that is on earth, God gives to us. That's right. We do have a right to carve canals through forests and mountains. We have a right to throw bridges across gorges and gullies. We have a right to dam up the mighty rivers to provide food and power to great cities. We have a right to carve highways across the landscape. Yes, because if our relationship with God is strong and loving, we have a right to the earth. However, and you'll pardon me, uh, just if you're hearing a, a noise in the background, it is a seaplane. Uh, seaplanes are the main other than boats, seaplanes are the main form of transport uh, between the islands of British Columbia and also Alaska, by the way. This whole region uh, is, is held together by seaplanes. And so uh, a seaplane is running up its engine right next to me as I speak and, um, and will be taking off down the, uh, the, the bay in just a few minutes. But uh, anyway, the, the back to the, the point at hand. If we reject God and instead we embrace a, a grotesque worldview that attempts to make us masters of the universe, well, paradoxically, uh, we, we, masters is just what we do not become. Instead, we start recognizing that all that is on earth 
has not been given to us. Consequently, we cease all creative activities that improve a property. After all, these are typically performed by owners, not tenants or squatters, and that's precisely what we make of ourselves. When our relationship with the master of the universe is not good, then we become squatters on his land, and we have no right to build dams or anything else at all. And this is why it is that when we once ruled the world and we had power from hydroelectric projects and we had roads that moved our traffic and commerce rapidly and when uh, uh, power was plentiful and cheap and water was freely available, food was created, we, we were the exporters of food to the whole world. But now, taking our place are other countries in Asia and Africa and they are the ones building grand projects that improve the lives of millions. They are building bridges and buildings and dams and roads. And they are being built in countries whose populations are becoming, well, this is really weird, but it's true, are becoming more and more Bible-centric. Is this a coincidence? I don't think so. I don't think it is at all. Yes, Christianity is thriving in China. Uh, Christianity is thriving in Africa. In fact, there are many uh, great preachers and teachers in the United States that travel regularly to the continent of Africa where they speak to audiences of in excess of 20,000 people at a time. There is an incredible biblical revival in Africa. There is an incredible Christian revival taking place in throughout uh, throughout Asia, even even in China. Look, uh, we got to realize that uh, the success of a country depends on a population that is doing the right thing. A population whose spiritual matrix is just as healthy as its physical. And yes, you know, I see uh, gyms sprouting up in every city. Sure, I think it's wonderful to do everything we can to keep the body that God gave us healthy. I think it's wonderful to take care of it. I think it's wonderful to do our best to preserve it and protect it and look after it. But no more urgent than taking equal care of our souls. And the weird thing is that when we abandon our souls, as a group, we start thinking a certain way. This is all subconscious, but it's absolutely reliable. You can see it happening around us. And it begins to uh, reflect in public views and cultural outlooks, in the uh, opinions of pundits and commentators, in the art that is produced, and yes, above all, in our politics. Because politicians are rightfully sensitive to the views of those that elected them, perhaps not quite as sensitive as they should be, but they are sensitive to the views of those who elected them. And as they start receiving a message that is the consequence of secularism, and nobody actually says, well, because we've abandoned the Bible, we now believe that kangaroo rats in the California desert are more important than human beings. 
They don't say that's why, because people are not conscious of it. They don't necessarily make the link. They don't realize that their secular tendencies flow directly like a great river into a wide view of political consensus that says no new buildings, no new dams, no new roads. We don't have the right to despoil the earth. And so, as a result, Americans are now being told exactly what third worlders used to believe 50 years ago, and that is we don't have water, so don't use any. We don't have electricity, so use less. Do you ever get any of those annoying letters from your electrical company, your power company, saying, do you know that your neighbors are using less electricity? Or they phrase another, do you know you're using 20% more electricity than your neighbors? Now, it's my view they send those to everybody uh, in order to shame people or oh, to use less electricity. Sure, we have, <laughs> we have no hydroelectric proje uh, projects built. The population of the country has doubled since the, large major, the last major hydroelectric project was constructed. But that doesn't matter. That doesn't matter at all. Right, we're uh, going to pause, and uh, in a moment, when we come back, uh, let's talk about cities, shall we, and uh, have a look at why it is that Scripture speaks of a city while there were only a handful of human beings on the planet. Be right back with you here on the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. There's still more to come from Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Don't miss Pat and Stu. You want us to believe that a law that has gone without incident for over 20 years in mostly evil conservative hick flyover states through a period where almost everyone in America was against gay marriage, that that country will now become a problem in a country that has moved over 35 points in the direction of gay marriage. Pat and Stu, weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. With stories in the areas of family, friendship, faith, and finance, this is Rabbi Daniel Lappin. Only on the Blaze Radio Network On Demand. Here we are back together again. And again, I thank you for listening to this podcast because without you listening, I'd have no incentive whatsoever to record it. So uh, this is a very good partnership. And partnerships are precisely the kind of thing that can flourish in, in, a, in an unprecedented manner um, in a city as opposed to rural areas. And uh, this was on my mind because, uh, as I mentioned, I'm recording this podcast in an extremely remote and rural setting and uh, very far away from any city at all. And on one hand, my wife and I think to ourselves, uh, gosh, you know, wouldn't it be absolutely splendid to, to live in a setting like this? And we daydream about that for a few minutes and, you know, how much we appreciate the self-reliance that you find in the countryside. And we, we love the independent spirit that you find among the, the coastal folk um, who live in, in this part of British Columbia, the Inside Passage, all the way up to Alaska. 
very independent-minded people and, uh, and, and people who are accustomed to not only taking care of themselves but without hesitation lending a hand uh, when needed. And so we think to ourselves, you know, how, how wonderful it would be to, to live here and this would be a terrific place. To, we'd be so productive here. We'd be able to get books written and we'd get be able to get uh, programs taped. And then after a certain period of uh, fantasizing, I think we both realize that in the final analysis, as much as we love coming here in the summer, we both need the stimulation of the city. What is the stimulation of the city? Well, it's that the good Lord structured things so as that creativity results when people bump into one another, when people interact with one another, when people are capable of relating to one another. And so, you know, you, you might imagine somebody uh, asking me, uh, Rabbi Lappin, I'm interested in opening up a jewelry store. Uh, I'm, I just like jewelry. I like diamonds and watches, and I like selling those things. And I finally accumulated a little capital. I got enough money to open up my own store. And I say, congratulations. That's wonderful. I admire the entrepreneurial spirit. And where about are you planning on opening your store? He says, well, that's exactly what I came to talk to you about. I'm thinking somewhere near Death Valley, California. And I say, oh, really? That's an interesting idea. Why would that be? He says, well, you know, uh, there's a lot of competition in business these days. And uh, it occurred to me that if I set up my store somewhere near Death Valley, uh, the odds of any other jewelry store within 200 miles are low. And I'd have all that business to myself. And I said, well, all what business? He said, well, you know, people come to Death Valley and... Uh, they want to get jewelry, and, and I'll be there. There's nobody else. There's no competition whatsoever. And I, um, I shake my head ruefully, and I say to him, well, I cannot give you my blessing for that venture. And he says, why? I said, because I think you're a terrific guy. You know your stuff. You're an honest guy. You'll make a, a very good jewelry store. The location is all wrong. And he says, well, where do you think I should go? I said, well, I think you should go and open your store somewhere near 47th Street in Manhattan in New York on the west side. He says, what? Rabbi Lappin, have you taken leave of your senses? Do you have any idea of how many jewelry stores there are on West 47th Street? And I say, I certainly do. And he says, well, why on earth would you tell me to go there? I said, because all those jewelry stores are there for a reason. Not a single one of them thought of setting up their store in Death Valley. They're right there. Is there a lot of competition? Of course there is. But there are also a whole lot more customers. And so every jewelry store on 47th Street develops his own clientele, his own, um, his own uh, customers, his own specialty. He ends up with his own suppliers, and so he develops a store with unique features, and that's how it works. Or you can go to the jewelry district in Los Angeles, or you can set up your store in the jewelry district in Minneapolis, um, or anywhere where there is a city with enough business for jewelers that there's actually a little jewelry district. That's what you need.
and he thinks to himself, well, you know, this this is, is a weird thing. Explain to me more. And I say to him, well, I'm going to be talking about it on a podcast coming up. So why don't you listen to that? Because, yes, what happens is that in a city, people run into one another. And they say, hey, you know, with your skills doing making jewelry and mine selling, we can open up a, a company, a jewelry manufacturing company. That would never have happened in Death Valley. That happens only where you're bumping into other people. And, uh, and sure enough, um, there are boats moving backwards and forwards along this little waterway, and you probably hear one in the background there. Yes, as he, uh, as he bubbles by and um, not bumping into me, fortunately. But yes, when uh, people do uh, bump into one another, whether it's at events or at parties or at uh, whatever the circumstances, ideas leap forth and connections are made, uh, ways of co cooperating emerge, and creativity is the result. This happens in cities. But at the same time, where is crime the worst in the cities? Where is secularism at its strongest? New York City, Washington, D.C., Los Angeles, Chicago. That's right. That's right. Detroit, Baltimore, all of these cities. That's right. So how can I be speaking of the good of a city when we all know everything that goes wrong in a city as well? And the answer my friends, as I'm sure something you already all know, which is that uh, whatever it is we're talking about, the more potential it has for good, the more potential it also has for bad. You know, a bicycle won't take very many people very far or very fast. But if anything goes wrong with a bicycle, if a bolt falls off or a wheel falls off on a bicycle, the worst you're likely to experience is a grazed knee. But a 777 jetliner, now that'll take a lot of people very far, mighty quickly. But if anything goes wrong there, if a bolt falls off or a wheel falls off there, the consequences are very dire. So the more potential a thing has for creativity, the more potential it also has in the negative direction. And nuclear power, nuclear power when, when people, well, how shall I put this, when people uh, abandon the foolishness that is ignited in their minds by secularism, when people are able to abandon the false gods of fear, environmentalism, shortage, when they're able to overcome all of that and realize that nuclear power has the capacity to free us all from drudgery. Yes, they, the tragedy that struck the Japanese people when the Fukuyama uh, nuclear power station had terrible problems after the Japanese islands suffered in a tsunami that was very tough, and one can only look with incredible admiration at the courage 
at the resilience, at the determination that those who suffered applied to rebuild their villages and towns and cities, their factories and, and stores, their highways and their railroads, all rebuilt. And yes, the nuclear power station did burn. And yes, Chernobyl in Russia, yes, went wrong. In both those cases, the consequences were far less serious than what would used to happen in a typical year in the coal mining industry. When, the, when, when virtually all the power was generated by coal and uh, an enormous amount of coal mining was going on, not only in terms of pollution, but it also in terms of injuries and deaths, there was more damage caused by coal mining than has been caused by Chernobyl and Fukuyama together. And uh, we've got to realize that. Now, when we finally achieve the miracle of fusion nuclear power, well, that'll change everything. But I'm hoping that long before that, because that's a while off, I believe, long before that we will finally wake up to the miracle that we have of fission, of nuclear power, that truly has the, cap has the capacity to generate limitless electricity at incredibly low cost. So uh, I can't wait for a time when they forget about the silly windmills, which do nothing but blight the landscape and kill birds, literally doing absolutely nothing. And uh, we, re we replace that by new nuclear power stations that we bring online. But the reason I, I mention this is that nuclear power has the capacity for this enormous good. It's a boon for mankind. It truly can free us all from drudgery of every kind. But at the same time, there's something called a nuclear bomb, which can cause incredible destruction. And when irresponsible regimes obtain it, it causes fear and concern around the whole world. But the capacity for good is always matched for the capacity is always matched by the capacity for bad as well. And so, yes, cities are where the degenerate, cell-depraved objects uh, that, that degrade uh, to, uh, to, to the depraved. That's right. The cities, cities are places of crime. Cities are places of, uh, of uh, uh, c corruption, terrible corruption. Uh, cities are, are places of pollution, and yes, they're places where degenerates sell the degrading to the depraved. All of that is true. But cities also contain culture. They contain music, art, and dance. They contain art galleries. They contain museums. They contain churches and church groups. They contain Bible colleges and universities. Cities are places of incredible potential for both good and bad. Cities harbor strident secularists and ardent atheists. But it's also true that cities accommodate multiple centers of worship, from simple synagogues to towering cathedrals. Cities possess vast churches teeming with worshipers and countless other expressions of faith including entire neighborhoods of Christmas decorations. 
entire neighborhoods of Jewish religious observance, entire neighborhoods where Bible study is a value and an appreciated value. And so, yes, cities do go both ways. I, um, I read a wonderful thing uh, that was written by um, a, uh, a, a, a wonderful Christian leader in the early days of this country. Uh, he was a preacher by the name of Cotton Mather. Does that ring a bell with you? Uh, Cotton Mather in 1709, right? Long before the United States was the United States, but Cotton Mather in 1709 said something quite remarkable, and I want to tell you what it is as soon as we come back. I also want to urge you to visit my website. Uh, that would be www.youneedarabbi.com. Youneedarabbi.com. And uh, the reason I'd like you to visit that is because, number one, you can subscribe to my free weekly email called Thought Tools. And uh, number two, you can also send me a message. There is a Contact Us tab on that website, and uh, I do get to read all the uh, messages that I get through that, uh, through that venue. So please do visit youneedarabbi.com and uh, be in touch with me. Sign on to Thought Tools, and let's make sure that we can indeed uh, proceed together. I can let you know when, uh, whenever there are new things happening or new podcasts coming out. And a uh, quick break, and then when I return, I want to tell you something that Cotton Mather said about a city early in the history of the United States of America. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Jay Severin. A Rand Paul candidacy might be able to appeal more so than any Republican nominee to African Americans, Hispanics, but especially the young people, the people coming of age. They are fundamentally leave me aloneers. Leave me alone. You know what I want for government? Leave me alone. Jay Severin. Weekdays, 2 to 5 p.m. Eastern. On the Blaze Radio Network. We now return with Rabbi Daniel Lappin on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back. I am your rabbi, revealing how the world really works here on the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show on the Blaze. And uh, thanks for being with me as we take a look at something that the Reverend Cotton Mather said in 1709. This was a wonderful speech he gave. Where do you think he gave it? In a church, right? Wrong. Cotton Mather, the Reverend Cotton Mather, gave a great speech in late 1709 to, yes, to the General Assembly of Massachusetts. In those days, nobody cried out, oh, separation of church and state. We're never allowed to have a preacher speak to a political gathering. That's evil. That's wrong. That violates the Constitution. Uh, no, actually, it doesn't. And um, although there wasn't yet a constitution, the constitution was composed uh, by people who would have been very comfortable with Cotton Mather delivering a sermon to the General Assembly of Massachusetts. And uh, the name of the, uh, the, the, the uh, speech was Theopolis Americana. Okay, 
Theopolis, well, you, you know what Theopolis is, right? Polis means basically a city, like Acropolis is the high city, as the word acrobat means some, you know, juggling up high. So uh, acra is from, I know it's a Greek word, you don't have to tell me, but it's derived from a Hebrew word uh, meaning up high, elevated, uh, akar, meaning high and important, and, and so Acropolis, the high city, um, and so Theopolis, a godly city. Got it? Theopolis, Theo, Theopolis Americana, the American godly city. And uh, here is, is just a line of what he said. Come hither, and I will show you an admirable spectacle. Tis an heavenly city, Descending out of heaven from God. Do you mind if I say that again? Come hither and I will show you an admirable spectacle. Tis an heavenly city descending out of heaven from God. And he went on to describe, he went on to describe the, the wonders of a city. The idea that when a city is based on God, there is no limit. Cities are places where there is close contact with many other humans. As a result of that, you can best achieve your maximum potential. You really can. But it is also terribly easy to mistake priorities in a city. It's very easy to lose your way. It's very easy to become anonymous and disconnected they call people like that homeless. And it's very, very sad. And so living in a city, more than anywhere else, needs a connection with the Bible, needs a connection with God. Living in the country, you're in touch with reality. Living in the country, you're not likely to become isolated from others because people are going to say, hey, where's Jack? Haven't seen him for a few days. But in the city, dangerous things can happen. And so, when a city is on the right track, there is no limit to what can be achieved in a city. When things go wrong in a city, they go terribly wrong. Terribly wrong indeed. But when things go right, if you've got a community in a city, you're connected to people, it is possible to achieve incredible potential, everything you're capable of. And cities remind us that life is at its most thrilling for all of us when we strive for the highest highs, despite being aware that the lowest lows are also possible. Our maximum potential is reached, and life achieves all its thrilling abilities when we try and aim for the highest highs even when we know that there is always the risk of falling off the rope and plummeting to the lowest of lows. I actually know somebody who won't get married. It's a guy. Won't get married and it, it took a long time. We discussed it many hours before it became clear why he wasn't getting married. And the reason, and again, it, 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 it was a diff, it, it, it's a reason that required uh, serious working. Uh, he wouldn't get married 
because he feared perhaps facing one day the possible loss of someone he loves. He just felt he would never be able to face that, so he didn't want to run the risk. As the old English saying is, better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all. And that's true. And I, I worked very hard to help this individual overcome that problem and realize that, yes, life without question has its losses, it has its sadnesses, it has its lowest lows. But if you fear those too much, then you'll never, ever experience the highest of highs as well. There are people who abandon dreams of building their own businesses because they fear failure. Sometimes they fear the humiliation of failure. They fear having to say, I tried my own business, it didn't work. Sometimes they fear other consequences of failure. But whatever it is, they are so overwhelmed by the lowest of the low that they relinquish the possibility of the highest of the highs. Uh, there are people who renounce the joy of having children for fear of potential heartbreaks waiting down the road. Are there, is there such a potential? Sure, there's such a potential. But by avoiding that possibility, they're also making sure that they're avoiding any chance whatsoever of achieving the great heights. And so, what did Cotton Mather mean when he spoke about uh, tis a heavenly city descending out of heaven from God? What does he mean by saying a city coming from God? And the answer, I think, is found early in the book of Genesis when Cain kills Abel, God punishes Cain with a quid pro quo. He gives him a punishment that's intended, as, as only God can do, to perfectly fit the crime. And Cain understands and acknowledges the wrong he did. And what does he do then? Well, the first thing he does is bring a new child into the world in an attempt, as it were, to make up for the life that he, 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 he took he now gives the world another life. And, uh, and this is why, that at that point, Scripture is silent on who he married. Scripture is silent on whether it was a religious ceremony or a civil union. Scripture is silent on whether it was a catered morning breakfast or a large dinner for all five human beings on the planet. What was it? And ancient Jewish wisdom explains that none of those questions matter. Well, we have to understand the only reason this is being told to us, it's not a fairy tale, it's not a, just a story. It's a disclosure of how the world really works. And Cain, having deprived the world of a life, needs to bring a life into the world again. And he names that child Enoch. But uh, one of the reasons that I always claim that everybody needs a rabbi regardless of their faith is because in Hebrew, Enoch isn't just a name. In Hebrew, Enoch actually means something very specific. 
What it means is educated. As it were, Cain saying, I get it. I now understand. I'm knowledgeable. I'm educated. I get it. We never knew what murder was till now. I'm sorry, God. I didn't understand, didn't know, but I get it now. I'm educated. Naming his son Enoch was Cain's way of telling God, I'm doing repentance. I got it. That's why I had a child. But he doesn't stop there. The next thing is he builds a city and names the city Educated. In other words, Enoch. That's what he calls his city after his son. Why? Why do you need a city? I mean, how many people are there? Let's assume Cain has a wife. And let's assume that Cain and his wife now have a child. They need a hut. They don't need a mansion. They don't need a neighborhood. They don't need a commune. They don't need a suburb. They don't need a village or a town. They certainly don't need a city. And yet, what do we find? Cain builds a city. Why is that? What is going on there? Why on earth does Cain need a city at this point? Well, that's something I think that is worthwhile looking into because it helps give us a glimpse into the value of a city. And perhaps before we're done with this uh, podcast, we might even be able to extract useful principles for functioning effectively within a city. That's right. Uh, I remind you of my website, youneedarabbi.com, and um, do send me an email from there. Go ahead. Uh, you go to my website, youneedarabbi.com, and that is R-A-B-B-I, youneedarabbi.com. And uh, you'll find a tab on that website uh, entitled Contact Us. And if you do that, uh, I'll be able to get your email. I'd love to hear from you. Also, uh, do, make sh do make sure that you are, in fact, um, uh, subscribed to Thought Tools, if you would, and uh, that way we're able to stay in touch. And also do visit the store and explore some of the resources that I've prepared uh, for those of you wishing to delve into some of these topics a little more deeply than I'm able to do in a podcast. Anyway, lots of material written up and uh, explained in, uh, on my website. And uh, love you to take a look at that. Let's uh, pause for a quick moment. And uh, just as soon as we come back, we will... Uh, take a look at why it was that Cain went ahead and built a city. For who? There's nobody there. What's that all about? Spilling ancient solutions for modern problems in the areas of family, faith, friendship, and finance. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. The Jeff Fisher Show. People wanted chocolate rabbits of all kinds of proportions. So, I mean, it started in the 1890s, even before that in Germany, uh, where they were making cutouts and getting chocolate pieces. But chocolate didn't become uh, a mainstay until, in, you know, really the Industrial Revolution. Oh, I know, until, I don't know what, America made it big? Huh, go figure. Amazing. So, get your chocolate bunny. Hollow or whole. The Jeff Fisher Show, Saturday morning, 6 to 8 Eastern, on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back to Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back and uh, moving on with the question 
of uh, cities, and particularly, what are we intended to learn from the Bible's account that after killing his brother, Cain had a child and built a city? For who? Well, we'll take a look at that. First of all, let's try and understand why exactly did Cain kill his brother? And ancient Jewish wisdom explains that if you take a look early in Genesis where that story is discussed, you will notice that it tells us that uh, Cain spoke to Abel in the field. But the Bible gives us no understanding of what Cain said to Abel. And ancient Jewish wisdom says, well, you see, the Bible never tells us anything that is obvious. The Bible never tells us anything at all that you can figure out for yourselves. The Bible leaves you to get that. Uh, you've noticed, I'm sure, that the, the very best comedians, the best comedians, uh, comedians that don't make you embarrassed, comedians that don't make you feel you need to take a shower after listening to them, comedians that uh, you can bring your mom to the show and everyone walks away feeling good and elated. With really good and skilled comedians, they don't spell everything out. You'll notice that uh, they'll pause before a punchline and give you time to figure it out for yourself. And you'll hear this warm swell of laughter in the audience before before the joke is finished, before the punchline comes. And it's okay, because he set it up so skillfully that almost with a thrill of joy and jubilation, you sort of get it, and you start laughing automatically. And then he comes in and finishes it off, and uh, it's, it's truly uh, a virtuoso performance. Well, uh, the Bible's just a little bit like that in the sense that it too leaves us the thrill of getting it by ourselves. And when it tells us something, it's something that we absolutely would not get for ourselves. And uh, ancient Jewish wisdom says, so why does the Bible not say exactly what it was that Cain spoke to Abel about in the field? And the answer is that uh, it was pretty obvious. Cain uh, said to Abel, look, we are the only two heirs of our father. And our father is, is getting old. I mean, you know, it, uh, he's, he's no youngster already. I mean, he's 900 years old. And uh, he, um, he uh, is eventually going to die. And when that happens, everything comes to us. And uh, Cain said... Therefore, I'm just letting you know, Abel, that as the oldest son, I will be taking the whole world, and you may live wherever you like and do whatever you like. You just have to pay me rent. And you might think to yourself now, oh, come on, was a concept like rent available then? Did, they, did people back then understand it? Yes, of course. Money and its value was something that, that human beings intuitively get. And uh, if I have something of value, I can sell it to you, or I can let you use it for a fee. If I have a car, I can rent it to you, and you can call me Hertz, or I can sell it to you. And I, in that case, I become a car dealer. But the idea 
that uh, Cain was going to take the entire world as the oldest son, and then obviously he expected Abel to pay rent. Abel responded, Abel responded and said, uh, Cain, um, no, that's not exactly how it's going to go. Uh, we're actually going to split it in half. We're two sons, and uh, I'll take half, and you'll take half. And, um, and what's more, uh, I'm going to take British Columbia in my part. Okay, well, that part I just added in. That's not really an ancient Jewish wisdom. But uh, as soon as Abel told Cain that uh, he was intent on sharing, Cain says, what? You're going to take half the world away from me? I was just telling you I'm taking the whole world, and you're going to take a half of it away? And you've got to bear in mind, as I told you, that every Bible name in Hebrew, in the Lord's language, has a meaning. Cain's name means material acquisition. And that was very much a part of, of Cain. Uh, and so the, the, the notion that somebody whose entire being is about material acquisition, and he was about to lose half the planet, unthinkable, intolerable, outrageous. And so, of course, uh, Cain, as somebody whose name is acquisition, did the only thing he could do to somebody who was going to take the, half the world away from him. That is, he killed him. That was what it was about. And uh, Cain fell into the trap of assuming that his wealth was diminished by the presence of other people. You see, the way God arranged things is that money should play a very important role in our lives. Take that away, and you've got a real problem. Let me explain what I mean. There are a number of extraordinarily wealthy people in the United States of America. Right? There's Bill Gates, there's uh, Warren Buffett, and uh, many others. Now, if these people did not believe in money, if they didn't trust money, how would they keep their wealth? I'll tell you how. They would buy all the land in all the cities. They would require, they, that's what they would do. They'd hold all the land. And that means you and I would be tenants. We wouldn't be able to own property because they would raise the prices and buy it all. We would have to pay rent to them. There'd be no alternative. But since they are willing to hold their assets in abstract form of monetary, money and monetary instruments like shares and bonds and stocks, all of that makes it possible for everybody to have part of the world. And the realization that, that they have, and we should all have, of course, is that the presence of other people is what makes it possible. It doesn't harm you. It helps you. The strength of a currency is partially the function of how many people use that currency and operate with economic productivity within that currency. And the more people doing that, the more valuable is that currency, the more useful is that currency. And that's something that Cain um, initially doesn't understand. Cain feels that his wealth is only in the land and that therefore anybody 
wanting some of that land is taking wealth away from him. God wanted him to understand that in reality, wealth is created with money. And money comes about through human economic interaction. You follow what I'm trying to say? And so when we now look at the quid pro quo, when we look at the punishment that God applied to Cain, it now makes perfect sense. God said to Cain, from here on out, anything you grow will not, anything you plant will never grow. You'll never be able to grow stuff. Other people might grow, but if you try and plant seeds in the same place, it won't work for you. And the second thing is, you're going to have to be a wanderer your whole life. You'll never stay in one place. Now tell me, how on earth is this a godly quid pro quo? How is this a punishment that fits the crime? How does that work? Answer? Well, see, I've already given you the clue. The answer is that uh, God has already said to Cain, Look, your wealth is not a function of getting rid of all the other people. I understand you got rid of Abel because you felt he was going to impinge on your wealth. He's going to diminish your wealth because he's going to take some of the land away. But you've got to realize that that's not how it works. I want you to understand that land only has two uses, development and agriculture. You can either build things on land or dig down and, uh, and extract things from the land, but that's you either build on the land or you grow stuff on the land. That's basically it. There's nothing else to do with land. You either develop it or you use it for agricultural purposes. And so God says, so I want you to see, you thought that it was important for you to keep all the land for yourself. Well, I'm going to show you what happens. From now onwards, anything you plant will never grow. So there goes the agricultural usage of land. And you'll never be in one place long. You're always going to be a wanderer. You're going to have to keep moving. And there goes the development. You'll never be in one place long enough to develop the land. You'll never be in one place long enough to see it grow. Because that's how people make money over land. When you buy land and you are willing to hold it for a period of time, maybe you buy land just outside the city. And the city grows and grows and expands. And pretty soon, that empty farmland you purchase now has higher value because development land in a city is more valuable than agricultural land. Great! Or maybe you uh, buy uh, a piece of land in, in, uh, in, in, a, in, in, in a part of the town that's not yet got popular. Town grows, uh, parts become more and more popular. And now you own a piece of land on which previously just sat uh, a garage and a little warehouse. And now the land is ripe for development into uh, a shopping center or a, uh, a block of condominiums or whatever it is. But that's how we make money with land. And God, and God said to Cain, here's your punishment. It's a quid pro quo. It's a perfect punishment to fit your crime. You thought... That by killing Abel, you'll get all the land? Okay, fine. There's all the land. It's all yours. Now what are you going to do with it? You can't plant and you can't develop. What are you going to do with it? 
and uh, Cain realizes, and he repents and does atonement, brings a new child into the world, calls the child educated, Enoch or Chanoch in Hebrew, and then he builds a city. Why does he build a city? Well, this is now what the Reverend Cotton Mather meant when he spoke to the Massachusetts General Assembly in 1709. Come hither and I will show you an admirable spectacle. Tis a heavenly city descending out of heaven from God. That's right. A city shows up early in the Bible because it is, in a sense, part of God's blueprint for human economic cooperation. The city is God saying, get together. I want you all to be together. I don't want you to be isolated from one another. I want you to all be close to one another because in that way, you are going to be able to help one another and bond with one another, interact with one another, cooperate with one another, and create things with one another. That, that can never be done in the isolation of the rural neighborhood. Wonderful. A real opportunity and how do we maximize the use of a city cities cities are good and if you are living in a very very small rural area and you are having trouble making a living you may have to move to a city and your soul may shrink at the prospect especially if you live in a beautiful area and you think to yourself I can't bear the thought of moving into an apartment in a city where I open the window and I look at a brick wall of the building next door. That's true. But it's in a city where it, you just might be able to achieve your maximum potential. Provided, provided you take your life vest with you. What's the life vest? A healthy spiritual mindset. Your life vest is the ability to remain anchored to the things that really matter in life. Remain firmly committed to the things that are right and important. And that way, living in a city allows you to reach for the highest highs and not to worry at all about sinking to the lowest of lows. You don't have to worry about that at all. I um, am going to tell you when we come back, if you've, if you've wondered at all why there is so much obsession with defending abortion in the United States of America. It's weird. Now, you know, there are attempts to do it in terms of women's rights and so on, and, um, and, and, and all, all understandable, all, all there, but... How about even when a little while ago there was this extraordinary juxtaposition of horror about a dead lion in Africa and relative indifference to nightmarish videos detailing Planned Parenthood's comfortable, I can barely bring myself to say the words, dismemberment of tiny human beings. What's going on there? Why didn't they do the obvious thing of saying, oops, terrible thing, we're sorry, we're not doing it anymore? I'll tell you coming back. The Blaze On Demand. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin. 
Don't miss the morning blaze with Doc and Skip. So uh, recently, the Transportation Security Administration had their secret screening checklist leaked. They're responsible for security. It's right in their name. And yet they had their secret checklist of what would call you out or single you out for additional screening. It's a secret checklist that got leaked. They're doing it wrong. They really are. You're telling me you are secure. You're responsible for security. And you can't even secure yourself? The Morning Blaze with Doc and Skip. Weekday mornings, 6 to 9 Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. We now return with Rabbi Daniel Lappin on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. We're back again on the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, and I thank you very much indeed for participating. I keep thanking you for that because I really do mean it from the bottom of my heart. Uh, I, I do watch the numbers of people listening to the podcast avidly. Uh, some might call it obsessively, but uh, it's precisely what encourages me and what uh, propels me to, to record the podcast because uh, for me personally, uh, I would find it ever so much easier to give a talk uh, to an audience of 3,000 people than I find it to, to, to record a podcast. And the, the reason is uh, because the audience flings back energy. When a uh, speaker addresses a live audience, there's an energy that comes back from the audience, and, uh, and the, the speaker picks up on that, and it fuels his own energy, and, and the whole thing just, uh, just drives itself to, to, a, to, to, to a higher and higher level of performance. Um, not in any way to, uh, to, to, to compare it, obviously, and I hope you understand that I draw the analogy for intellectual purposes, not for any emotional uh, import. But uh, if you've ever watched any of the videos of Hitler, Adolf Hitler, addressing the Nazi faithful at the Nuremberg Auditorium, the Nuremberg Outdoor Rally, uh, it, it's, it's quite amazing, and you see this mechanism at work. Now, Again, uh, Hitler was a master orator. Let's face it, and uh, and the the party faithful uh, lapped it up, and uh, he he flung them red meat. Um, at the same time, there was also a critical mass of people. There were tens of thousands of people, typically, at the uh, amphitheater when he spoke, um, and there was also a lot of drama. They were very very good at the drama aspect. Uh, the, the flags, it was usually at nighttime, there were floodlights. Uh, the enormous swastika banners were lit by bright floodlights. And the, the whole atmosphere uh, was so powerful and so electrifying that uh, the, the speech only served to further uh, lift the energy levels of the audience. And you can, you can see that, that Hitler gets more and more wound up as the speech progresses. So uh, anyway, I, I tell you all of that just to sort of share some of the mechanics behind the podcast and, uh, and, and why it is that knowing that you're listening is so terribly important to me. Um, I really must post uh, on my website at youneedarabbi.com. I must really post uh, some video of uh, where I'm recording this podcast because uh, it's, it, it's really very, very beautiful and very soul-restoring. Uh, it's peaceful, and the about the only thing that uh, that that disturbs the silence here is if uh, uh, bird wheels overhead. There are eagles here, 
um, or a, uh, a boat comes chugging by, it might be a fishing boat or, uh, uh, or, or a private boat, um, and, uh, and that, that's about it. There's not, oh, occasionally a seaplane uh, passes by overhead, but there's not a lot going on, which is uh, really quite, quite lovely and uh, a very, very welcome break for me. Now, uh, I posed a question when we wrapped up the last segment, and the question was, so uh, a little while ago, there was an incident where, and it was very revealing, really revealing and, and fascinating, and really, uh, if you've been listening to the, the past few podcasts, then you'll really understand and, and, gr- and grasp uh, intuitively a lot of what's really going on here. You won't need my explanations at all, you'll, since you'll be in possession of the uh, underlying principles, you'll be able to wrap it all up quite neatly in a big red bow yourself. But the, um, the, the incident was when a, um, a, uh, a, a hunter from New Jersey made an arrangement with a Zimbabwean company to go on safari, and um, he got a lion. He shot a lion. Well, there was some controversy afterwards as to whether the lion had been lured out of the, the game reserve uh, or not. There's some controversy. There was also uh, the belief that this was a specific beloved lion called Cecil. Uh, the media um, often refer to him as Cecil, which is not, it may be the correct American pronunciation, but in Southern Africa, uh, the name S-C-E-C-I-L is Cecil. And that name, whenever it's used, is almost inevitably in memory of or named after Cecil Rhodes, Cecil John Rhodes, who was uh, to whom the country Rhodesia was named, and also the Rhodes Scholarship that uh, people like President Bill Clinton uh, benefited from. And, um, and so the lion apparently was called Cecil, apparently a known lion. And if indeed he was lured out of the game reserve for the uh, for the money that and, and hunters routinely pay in the tens of thousands of dollars to shoot big game in Africa, and as I think everybody knows, the most of the governments in Africa, really most of them, are seriously corrupt. And when uh, a, a hunter uh, like this particular dentist from New Jersey paid, I don't know, forty or fifty thousand or whatever it was. Uh, the overwhelming majority of that goes straight into the pockets of uh, dictator Mugabe of Zimbabwe, who has uh, embittered the lives of his countrymen, um, and most of whom, by the way, and, and I know Rhodesia well, I, I rode a motorcycle on a private um, adventure, um, exploration, um, journey many years back, uh, so I, I knew Rhodesia well, and I knew it at the time of the transition in between 64 and 74, that 10 years when uh, Prime Minister Ian Smith was uh, removed and the, uh, the government of Rhodesia was disbanded and Robert Mugabe became the, the head of uh, what was then that part of Rhodesia. Uh, it's, it, you know, then changed the name to Zimbabwe. The lives of ordinary citizens, no matter what the color of their skins, only went from bad to worse under Mugabe. And uh, other than those few in power enjoying the fruits of their corruption, the overwhelming majority would welcome back the, quote, white government of um, Ian Smith, 
with open arms because lives, at least lives were safe and lives were better and there was an economy. Uh, Rhodesia was a net, a net exporter. It had a strong currency uh, until it was essentially uh, thrown to communist insurgents uh, and that was what was going on in Africa in the 1960s. And, uh, and um, basically thousands and thousands of white Rhodesians um, were evicted. They, uh, they had to leave the country and find homes and build lives elsewhere. Um, regardless, the point is that uh, if wrong was done in terms of the, the lion being lured out of a reserve, and I, I have no information on that, I just know what you know if you've paid any attention to it, uh, the just the news items. If that were true, that fault doesn't lie with the dentist who uh, hunted the lion. That fault lies with the uh, Zimbabwean authorities and the Zimbabwean tour operators um, who made this particular safari, hunting safari, available uh, to an American tourist. Um, regardless of the fact, the, the, the fascinating thing is that the country went... Uh, completely nuts. Now, when I say the country, you know, it probably wasn't you. It certainly wasn't me. So who was it? Well, it was the, the media, the opinion makers and the idea generators of society, uh, the people who write op-eds and the people who uh, are the talking heads on television, uh, the overwhelming majority of whom subscribe to the religion of secular fundamentalism. And, uh, and they were beside themselves. Uh, calls went out on social media for uh, the hunter, the New Jersey dentist, to be put in jail, to be extradited for for trial in in Zimbabwe, uh, and you know nobody actually stopped to discuss like what did he actually do wrong? Where where was the crime? This was so reminiscent of the Stalinist regime, the Stalinist era in the Soviet Union, uh, where people on a whim. Were, were charged, prosecuted, uh, condemned, and, and very often executed on a whim, simply because of the, the feeling they, they evoked in the ruling elite. There was no question of, of uh, right and wrong. There was no question of law and legality. And that was what it felt like. It was almost scary, in a way, to see how the mob of American liberalism uh, rose up in its fury uh, people started posting his address on the web. It, again, you know, when, when there is no uh, non-malevolent intent behind anybody posting anyone's address on the Internet. The only reason that is done is in the hope that uh, it, it will evoke some kind of, of violent reaction. That's what people do it for. And, uh, and people who do it should have it done to them so that they know what it's like. But... Uh, the, the dentist had to basically flee and go into hiding, so was, uh, literally in fear of his life. His practice was, was harmed, and all of this because he hunted a lion. Now, hunting lions in Africa is legal. In Zimbabwe, it's not only legal, it is encouraged. Uh, me, myself, I'm, I'm not a hunter, but... It, it's okay. I'm, it, doesn't, it doesn't arouse me to passions of fury. But at exactly the same time as the United States cultural elite 
uh, was losing its breakfast over the hunting of Cecil the lion, if it indeed was Cecil the lion, uh, at exactly the same time, uh, an, an organization had uh, been operating undercover and um, secretly filming a high-ranking doctor, if you please, in the Planned Parenthood organization, um, who calmly described to the camera people posing as uh, scientific researchers. You'll remember that Nazi Germany had its fair share of scientific researchers. Well, these people posed as scientific researchers, and their um, uh, stated purpose, they were looking to buy uh, aborted baby parts. And uh, to listen to the cold-blooded and callous description uh, by the Planned Parenthood uh, representative of how they, uh, you'll pardon me, how they learned to crush the, 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 the baby in certain ways to... All right, it's enough. You get it. It's just horrible. And, um, and there was not, in, in terms of, uh, of cultural pressure, there wasn't even a fraction of cultural outrage about the disclosure that Planned Parenthood was deliberately crushing babies in utero in a certain way so that they can more effectively sell the parts. And the doctor said, well, it, you know, it gets maximum dollar and I want to buy a Lamborghini. She said, I mean, presumably joking or maybe not, but just that this kind of frivolous, uh, callous talk could go on about something quite as awful and as horrible. Uh, even if somebody could persuade me that it needed to be done for some unimaginable purpose, I would have expected it to be surrounded by an atmosphere of solemnity and sadness at, at its necessity of being done, rather than um, the, the horribly casual way in which it was being spoken about. And nobody cares. It was the most amazing thing. Now, one thought occurred to me, and I don't know, but it seemed possible to me that the uh, fuss about Cecil the Lion was generated specifically in order to drive the Planned Parenthood story off the front pages. That's one of the things that seemed to me, and, uh, and, and very, very possibly so. But if not, again, why so much more outrage about the lion than about the baby? The answer? I'm going to ask you to hold on to the next segment coming up in just a moment to enable me to explain it right there. Don't go away. Ancient solutions to modern problems. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Coming up today on Pat and Stu. Hey, it's Easter. Uh, Christians do a lot of bad things. I don't like what they do a lot of the time, but I won't get into that today. Ha, 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 ha. Uh, here, uh, and then he goes on for several minutes basically saying, what I want to do is tell you all the terrible things Christians have done because they're largely awful people. But I'll leave but that for another day. I can't do that. You guys know I can't do it because I'll get in trouble. Pat and Stu, weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. Revealing how the world really works. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. Your rabbi, Rabbi Daniel Lappin, revealing how the world really works. And uh, make a note of my website, won't you? www.youneedarabbi.com. 
you need a rabbi.com. A lot of people ask me, is that Y-O-U you need or you, letter you need? And uh, I think it works both ways, actually. You need a rabbi.com. And uh, when you're there, you'll be able to shoot me a message. If there's anything you'd like to add, anything you feel I've omitted or erred on in a podcast or something you'd like me to address in the podcast, that way you have the website bookmarked and you can reach it any time. You can also subscribe to my email newsletter and you're also able to just uh, explore the website and learn probably more about me than you care to know. But uh, there it is, youneedarabbi.com, and we're just talking about the uh, uh, extraordinary juxtaposition of a country going completely crazy about a lion being hunted completely legally in Zimbabwe by a, a New Jersey dentist. And at the same time as this was going on, uh, several videos were being released by uh, an organization that had taped a doctor in a senior position of Planned Parenthood, calmly describing the dismemberment of tiny human beings uh, for sale, pardon, you'll, ex uh, you'll excuse me, for scientific research, in quotation marks. And I say in quotation marks because uh, Joseph Mengele was the doctor who operated in the concentration camps of Nazi journey, Germany and conducted the most hideous experiments on concentration camp inmates in the name of scientific experiments, scientific research. So uh, whenever I hear the word scientific research, I've got to tell you my, uh, my heart quakes for the horrors that have been inflicted on human beings in the name of scientific research. And, um, and so why is the, the, the country uh, driven frantic with anger and horror at the hunting of a lion, and it yet remains relatively indifferent to widespread publicity revealing what really is going on in the back rooms, the scientific labs, the uh, clinics of an organization. And was there ever an organization more innocuously named than Planned Parenthood? Well, uh, Again, leaving aside any discussion of stem cell research and whether lives are saved or not, you know, all of that can be discussed. But right now, what I'm interested in is why so much anger and fury at the hunter of Cecil the lion and complete indifference to those who you might say hunt tiny little human beings, maybe? What, what is going on? And once again, the domination throughout the culture of America's government-sanctioned official religion of secular fundamentalism um, states very clearly that humans and animals are the same thing. We're just quantitatively different, but not qualitatively different. In other words, humans might have bigger brains than many creatures, but uh, smaller muscles than many others. Uh, we have less hair than some creatures, more than others. We can run faster than some, slower than others. In other words, uh, human beings are just part of the lengthy spectrum of animal life on planet Earth. 
That is a, uh, a fundamental doctrine of the faith of secular fundamentalism, and it follows almost inevitably, does it not, from a starting position that uh, if there is no God and no creator, then everything we see around us, including Cecil the Lion, is nothing other than a consequence of chemicals arranged um, by a lengthy process of unaided materialistic evolution. And that means that, uh, that human beings are, are no more sacred than, than lions are. That's step number one. And so there is no reason to be more upset about the loss of an animal or the loss of a human over the loss of an animal. Um, as a matter of fact, and you can try this yourself, by the way, if you have any children at high school, and it would have to be a government high school, um, and I think that's the correct term. I, d I don't think public high school uh, adequately describes the process of indoctrination that now takes place in government high schools. But if you have a child not at a private school, not at a parochial, not at a church school, but you have a, a child at a government school, and that child is sometime over at, at your house along with his or her friends, ideally what you want is a gathering of, you know, four, five, six, seven high schoolers. And, um, and you should pose a question and ask them, you know, if there's, if there's conversation, maybe they're having a dinner at your or lunch at your house, or whatever it is, if there's a good convenient opportunity to ask them a question, say to them, you know, I, would it be okay if I ask you something? I'm, I'm really curious. Um, it, and I want you to answer quickly. I don't want you to give this a lot of thought. I want your intuitive answer. I want the answer you jump at right away. Um, you know, we can then afterwards, we can talk about it and think it through if you want to, if you're interested. But right now, I would like you all to just call out your answer straight away as soon as I pose the question. Here's my question. And, and that is that... Um, your family pet, the dog that has been part of your family for the last seven years, that you've grown up with, maybe it was longer than that, uh, that dog, for one reason or another, is drowning in the family swimming pool. And at the same time, a, uh, a stranger you've never seen, somebody walking by, or maybe you come out and, uh, and it's somebody who you've never seen before who's decided to sort of uh, um, s uh, trespass and swim in your pool, He's also drowning. Your choice now is you can only save your family pet that's been part of your family for years or a stranger you've never seen before. Who do you save? Try it out, uh, as I have, and you will be as shocked as I was when you see that the majority of uh, high school students who attend government high schools will intuitively tell you the family pet gets saved before the, the stranger. This helps to establish and to demonstrate how effectively uh, government schools have propagandized their students into believing that uh, human beings and animals are all part of one spectrum of life on the planet. There is no qualitative difference, and therefore all you're left with is an emotional uh, question. In other words, here's one animal with two legs drowning, here's another animal with four legs drowning. Which one should I pick? There is no moral question. It's just an emotional question. Well, I guess the one that's closest to my family, the one I feel closest to, go for the, go for the family dog. And that's what the majority of people, uh, the majority of high schoolers will tell you. Uh, and it, it's, uh, it's, it's a sobering thing to listen to, actually. Um, so that's why I suggest you actually 
uh, do try it out. But uh, what this helps understand, explain then is that, so on the surface of it, we've got a, one animal uh, being shot in a hunt, and then we've got a whole lot of other little animals uh, dying for scientific research. Okay? See? But there's another aspect to it as well. The other aspect to it as well is that abortion has been sanctified in the religion of secular fundamentalism because what it, one of the things it does is separate sex from procreation. Now, nobody believes, nobody who knows anything at all believes that uh, sex is inextricably linked to procreation. There is a bonding aspect of it that the good Lord intended for a husband and a wife uh, to be filled with a sense of uh, gratitude and joy with one another, and, uh, and physical intimacy is, is clearly a part of that. But uh, the, the linkage to uh, procreation at the same time is a very real one. So real, as a matter of fact, that uh, no less an individual, and I never ever would have expected it from Norman Mailer. Norman Mailer, um, a, a famous uh, American 20th century novelist, and into the 21st as well, and um, a lot of good work, a lot of uh, less good work, but, uh, but he said something which was unbelievably honest and uh, completely unexpected. And uh, I uh, doffed my metaphorical hat to him in, in salute for his uh, honesty on this one. He had a vasectomy, and uh, he subsequently said uh, and wrote, he said, you know, uh, I was assured by the doctors that uh, all a vasectomy does is eliminate my ability to uh, impregnate, and, uh, and that suited me fine for this stage of my life, so I went ahead and had a vasectomy. I was assured that there were no nerves involved, and, and that's true, and that there was no, uh, no impact on sensation and enjoyment and uh, experience, and I went ahead and did it, and they lied to me. Uh, he said, um, and I accept that no nerves were severed. I accept that nothing physically was done. But he said, the removal of the potential of life robs the act of a great deal of its experience and a great deal of its significance. Even though birth control is used and even though every, uh, every assurance is made that in, in this, in, he said, but nonetheless, when a vasectomy is done, it utterly obliterates any possibility of pregnancy he said and that leaves a vacuum it changes it entirely it did for me it changes it for any sensitive man and uh, and and I was lied to anyway, extraordinary thing an extraordinary thing because a fundamental part of the sacrament of secular fundamentalism is that uh, sex is without consequence sex is to be uh, uh, enjoyed and experienced in all its varieties with absolutely no restriction, no rules, no regulations. All of these restrictive uh, requirements and rules only come from the Judeo-Christian culture which must be removed from the human experience so we can be freed for, uh, to live our lives in, 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 in utter fulfillment and utter um, enjoyment. You know, this is, this is part of the structure of secular fundamentalism. Okay, fine. Well, uh, the, uh, the, the reason that uh, sex ed is pushed so aggressively in schools 
is precisely because they know that teaching sex ed will increase sexual experimentation, not diminish it, and that's part of the goal. The goal, they believe, is to give young people an early and healthy exposure to sex and for that to... Okay, so anyway, what's, what's going on here? Well, one of the major differences between the religion, the biblical religions of the Judeo-Christian ethic and the religion of secular fundamentalism is whether sex is sacramental, whether sex is sacred. Uh, whether sex is part of our relationship with God, uh, whether when a husband and wife are intimate, God smiles. That's really part of the whole thing. Or is it nothing other than a sneeze in the spinal column? And secular fundamentalism believes that it is nothing more than a sneeze in the, in the spinal column. And uh, if that is the case, then if there is any accidental unintended pregnancy, it should just be terminated by whatever method is available, by whatever method uh, people wish and people choose. And abortion is just one of those. So, yes, there is a squeamishness, uh, and it is true that uh, as science has moved along over the years since Roe v. Wade, uh, it becomes more and more apparent that the lies that were told about the fetus not feeling anything, it's, it's just a blob of protoplasm, were in fact nothing but lies. And the science shows, um, uh, photographs and sonograms show uh, the baby shrinking from the abortionist's forceps, uh, trying to get away from I mean, it's, it's all horrifying and shocking. But nothing must be allowed to interfere with the God of secular fundamentalism and utterly free sexual expression is one of those gods. It's one of the reasons that homosexuality is uh, encouraged and, uh, and, and treated as, as this incredibly special category of, of citizens. It's, it's really very, very remarkable because uh, it, and the reason for it, easy to understand. Once you understand the sacramental role that sex enjoys in the religion, of secular fundamentalism. And so why is it then that uh, Planned, Parenthood didn't, Planned Parenthood didn't say, oops, sorry, uh, this doctor will be fired, uh, I didn't want to say terminated, and um, then uh, uh, we apologize, this is going to be stopped. Why didn't they do that? Isn't that, I mean, normally a crisis management PR agency would say that's the first thing you do. Own it, face up to it, acknowledge it, apologize, start making it good, making right. I mean, that's what you do. And yet they dig their heels in and double down on it. Why? Uh, because for the, exactly the same reason that if, um, if somebody came to me and said, look, you know, you're Jewish, uh, you observe Sabbath as Saturday from Friday night until Saturday night, uh, we want you to work. We'll, we'll pay you $1,000. We'll pay you $100,000. We'll pay you a $1 million. Uh, all you've got to do is work this coming Saturday. And, um, and, and that's it. You know, we're not going to interfere with anything else that you do. Just go, why, why would I intend and certainly use every muscle of willpower possible to turn down that offer? Because in the case of a religion, you know, it's kind of, you either buy into it or you don't buy into it. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm perfect and I follow all the rules. No, it doesn't mean that. 
But on things that are fundamental, if you compromise on those, you've kind of compromised on the essence of your religion. Well, in secular fundamentalism, it's no different. If they compromise and concede the immorality of abortion, then this chips away at the very foundation of the entire structure of secular fundamentalism. It is a religion, and with religions, you do not concede anything. With religions, you stand firm. And that's why throughout history, Jews and Christians have died for their faith. Jews and Christians have been burnt at the stake. Jews and Christians have been murdered and massacred for their faith. That is correct. It has happened. And it will happen into the future, not just for Jews and Christians, but for the equally ardent devotees of the evil religion of secular fundamentalism as well. I am your rabbi, Rabbi Daniel Lappin. Thanks for being with me for this podcast and uh, wishing you a wonderful week, a uh, happy Well, actually, I can't wish you a happy one because your happiness is entirely up to you. But I can wish you a healthy and prosperous new uh, coming week and uh, looking forward to being together again next week. Thank you for listening. Filling ancient solutions for modern problems in the areas of family, faith, friendship, and finance. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, on demand on the Blaze Radio Network.